This is NSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is April 7th, 2022. Today on the program, we look back at the wild ride that was the first quarter of 2022 with some hope of finding clues to help us manage whatever is to come. And if the last couple of years have taught us anything, whatever is to come is likely something few of us have even thought about. Getting back to the last three months, some might say it's been a tale of two quarters. So a quarter of two tales maybe is a better way to say that. Yes, of course, Mark, you're right. I mean, that that does make more sense. For our listeners, that's friend of the pod, Mark Carver, Global Head of Equity Factor Products, Equity Portfolio Management, and Resident Dickens Expert, apparently, at MSCI. We'll hear more from Mark in a bit. But for a high-level view of those two tales, we turn to another old friend. I'm Hitendra Vasani, part of MSCI's Global Solutions Research Team based in London. So overall, uh, global equities, uh, as measured by MSCI Acqui, uh, returned minus 5.3%. But that doesn't tell the full picture. Uh, in our latest research, Disentangling Market Gyrations, uh, we aim to uncover significant rotations in the underlying markets. Uh, and to your opening remarks, there were two events that roiled markets. The first was the surge in inflation in developed markets, be it in the US, in UK, in Europe, going to levels not seen for over 30 years. And that added pressure uh, on central banks to raise rates. Now, in terms of market impact, that led to some of the largest rotations between style indexes, namely from growth into value, not seen for several years. The second tail event was stemming from the geopolitical tensions from Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine, and that led to a significant upward repricing of commodities. Uh, Russia is a key supplier of oil, natural gas, coal, aluminium and wheat. Ukraine, key exporter of wheat. Uh, and that's added the upward pressure to inflation, which was already high, uh, potentially adding further disruption to supply chains. and. Uh, potentially derailing the global economic recovery. Lots to unpack there. So let's start from the start. We're hearing a lot from clients about understanding the impact of the way equity assets trade in inflationary environments. What can we learn from parts of the world where we have seen this type of inflation? Stress tests uh, are more important to clients so they can understand how to tackle this new frontier of rising inflation. Investors are saying, what kind of inflation will this be? Uh, We define, our research team defines inflation under two states, what we might call a heating up economy, that is rising inflation with rising economic growth. You might say that that's um, demand, uh, demand inflation, and some might think that can be good for equity markets. The other state is rising inflation with lower growth. That's a stagflationary environment. And there's a little bit of debate going on in our industry about which condition we'll see. Will we see a heating up economy or a stagflationary environment? And obviously equity assets, whether we look at the factors or sectors will perform differently. So clients are 
very keen to understand what we can uh, share with them from a research and a stress testing perspective about how assets will trade in those uh, and obviously be priced in those different environments. I will confess I'm not a macroeconomist. I will, however, tell you what we learned in our long-dated study, and this was done by some of my colleagues on the research team, where we looked at style factors uh, as well as sectors and how they performed in stagflationary environments. Now, it's tough enough when you have prices going up and you know the economies are still strong or more resilient, but in a stagflationary environment, uh, it's it's a much harsher environment to invest in, and in those environments, the sectors that tend to do well are more, as you might expect, those with pricing power, healthcare, utilities. On the factor side, the clear winner that we noted were the MinVol strategies. Some listeners may say, well, of course, that stands to reason that's the most defensive you know, factor index. But the sort of the fascinating thing was on the sector side, it was much more about pricing power with the sectors that did better. Um, on the factor side, it was much more about the defensive nature. And so I think investors are sort of gripping for the reality that we could have stagflation. But what they're telling us is that it probably will be different in certain regions and countries within certain regions. So in other words, we may see more of that heating up uh, environment in one part of the world and a stagflationary environment in another part of the world. A phrase that we see more and more in the market at the moment is stagflation and the risk of stagflation. That's our third guest. I'm Anthony Kruger. I am head of factor ETFs at iShares BlackRock in EMEA. We do see that um, Europe probably has, you know, a, a bit more of concern around this area. There might be a bigger hit to uh, to growth in Europe. So stagflation, well, minimum volatility and quality perform well, while value and small size uh, struggle, um, and momentum can also perform quite well. Now, for for an institutional investor, you might want to dig a bit deeper and and think about the quality factor. And we think this factor is, is really interesting at the moment because, well, if you think about the markets in the last decade, a lot of market rhetoric was around revenue growth. It was about companies growing their revenues quickly. And they might not be profitable yet, but as long as you are growing your revenues, the the tone has shifted much more towards quality and focus on margin and sustainability of uh, profitability. So now we're in kind of, I'd say, a margin-led cycle. Just to finish off this, this kind of uh, thought process, if we're also potentially thinking about the other side of stagflation is an inflationary boom. So that is where we still see higher inflation, but economic growth is still strong. And we are still seeing economic growth in the US and Europe and and around the world. So 
do we see uh, you know an inflationary boom as a likely scenario and which factors perform well then well it's going to be small size and value that perform particularly well during an inflationary boom uh, scenario so for an institutional investor thinking about do they have some value exposure in their portfolio do they have some quality exposure in their portfolio sometimes those segues they they just get handed to you so let's stick with that question of growth and value we heard Hatendra talk about this earlier as well and this is one area where Hatendra and Mark seem to be very much on the same page when we think about the beginning of the quarter where we were much uh, more concerned about the macroeconomic environment the big headline there was the growth to value rotation and make no mistake we did see a a rotation from growth to value but it was really too simplistic to define it that way when we looked more deeply at the factor structure what we were really witnessing at the beginning of the quarter was a rotation away from the riskiest end of growth stocks to stocks that had been very beaten down sort of the beaten down value stocks so to me it was almost more of a risk to cheap rotation the reason i say that when we look at the factors that were performing worst and best at the beginning of the quarter pre the russian invasion residual volatility which by the way ended up being the weakest performing factor for the entire quarter but it was really weak uh, prior to the russian invasion at the other end you saw the value dimensions earnings yield and long term reversal as the best performing at that time growth was actually kind of uninteresting it was modestly down for the full quarter earnings yield performed well and growth actually got uh continuously weaker uh so it it ended up down uh for the quarter as investors would expect but i think it's always important to go beyond the headlines because what we know is that not all growth managers are alike not all value managers are alike and as a result to really understand the difference between one and another you need to look deeply at what's really driving the portfolio those underlying exposures that are less uh, obvious that often tells you the truth so when i look back over the majority of my career uh, growth has outperformed value which it goes against what i learned at university now In the last 20 years, yes, we've seen uh various crisis periods, the tech bubble, the financial crisis, the covid crisis, and during certain episodes value has outperformed growth, uh particularly during this early stage uh, uh market recoveries, but over the full sample generally uh growth has outperformed value. Now, taking a step back, how and when has this happened? Well this happened during a period of a secular decline in interest rates, low inflation and a strong trend towards globalization. And even if we look back at say the last 2 years during the height of the global pandemic, um there's been surplus liquidity from global central banks, investors have continued to chase those high risk growth stocks. Now the questions on investors minds now is the backdrop has changed. Rates are rising. inflation has surged we're in a recovery from covid and we're arguably in a phase of deglobalization so what does that mean for the growth versus value trade and the answer is not as simple as growth outperforms then value underperforms 
there's actually a more nuance to this. If we look within growth, it's actually the high risk growth stocks that have sold off the most and rotated into value. We look at low risk, high quality growth that's remained somewhat resilient in the recent history, but also in the longer term as well. I think when we um, look at investors, they typically look for context in terms of how does my strategy perform in different market environments? Most investors were taught that um, for bearing um, valuation risk, they would be compensated with risk premiums, and that hasn't paid off. So investors are now questioning, has the definition of value changed? Has the, has the dynamics of the economy changed where we're less reliable on machinery and production of hard goods and hardware to somewhere that's more software and technology orientated? And so perhaps value should consider these new descriptors, be it research and development, innovation, patents, and so on and so forth. So I would say um, the way investors perceive value is also evolving, but also keep in mind is we're now in a rising rate, rising inflation environment with potentially uh, high economic growth should we recover from the recent turmoil. And historically, that's been favorable for value. There is a uh, quote uh, we've used, uh, and it, it came from a research note I, I read, but it's it's actually from Guns N' Roses. It's 14 years of silence, 14 years of pain, and it's 14 years that are gone forever, and I'll never have a game. And this really speaks to the period of time where value has underperformed growth. And there have been periods during the last 14 years where we have had value rallies, but they have been um, some false dawns, if, if I may put it that way. And when we sit around a, a table often with, with investors, you know, 14 years is a long time. And for some people, it, it may even be their whole investing career. So we need to look back further and assess what, what is different this time. And uh, why has this topic uh, at the beginning of the year come to the fore? So typically, when you've got a value type of stock, um, it will typically trade at a much lower PE. Um, and that just means it's, it's the amount of time that uh, you expect to get paid back your, your yearly cash flows. So if, if a company has a PE of five and you've got $2 earnings per share um, and you use a 2% discount rate, you would discount that over the five years, PE of five, and you get to kind of your net present value of that stock. Now, if you look at a growth stock, they typically trading at PEs much higher. You know, some, some growth stocks, PEs in, in the hundreds. But if we took, for example, a stock of a, a PE of say 66, so 66 years it would take to, to get back uh, to a net present value with $8 earnings per share. Um, if you then used a 2% discount rate, so as we see essentially your discount rate you'd use off the yield curve, whether you take that um, uh, at whichever point you wanna use, uh, the the growth stock with the 66 uh, PE 
is a lot more sensitive to that. And so you end up with a huge discount to its potential stock price at this point in time. So what you're seeing is this, as we see the, the discount rate increase, uh, you see this big divergence between a, a value stock and a growth stock, just fundamentally in how long an investor can expect to get their, their money back essentially, and how that impacts your, your future earnings. And that's what really um, was happening in the market at, at the beginning of, of the year. And we saw a huge amount of flow go into value-orientated ETFs and value uh, index products. As investors sought to take advantage of the steepening yield curve and to perhaps offset some of their growth biases in their portfolios. But where do those growth biases come from? Well, I think that people hold to their convictions and that there for sure are divides between the growth investor and the value investor. Um, and that has played out where there's been a lot of you know, value uh, advocates who have had to defend their value style for the last, let's call it the last decade or more. And some of them are now taking a victory lap. Um, but the truth is there are growth defenders. And you know, there, there, there will be a divide. The truth is that you know, the, the best investors are adaptable. They, they look at the macro conditions and they compare the changing conditions of today versus what we've seen over the last you know, long period of time or more recent period of time to try to say, look, no two markets are exactly the same, but how are the underlying dynamics shifting? And then how do I invest based on those dynamics? And so, you know, you are seeing this, this now struggle for some people who are challenging their own convictions. I think people like the familiar. People respond to things based on their, their personal experience. And one of the things that we can hear in the client conversations we're having is this sort of internal fight that some people are having about, you know, is this time different? And what I mean by that is every period we've seen for much of the last, you know, 40 years, when growth has struggled, that struggle uh, has been a, in some ways a buying opportunity for clients where they were able to go in, take advantage of the drawdown in growth, buy growth assets, and that's one over time. Now, for sure, in the last 40 years, there have been extended periods of time where value investments have outperformed growth. But if you look at the 40-year period in total or the 30-year period in total, generally growth has been favorable. So you can hear some investors saying, you know, this presents a buying opportunity. In fact, I heard, a, you know, one market analyst uh, today on a, you know, popular TV program here in the States arguing this exact case that, Growth has come down. A lot of these stocks are now trading at more attractive valuation, and it's the right time to step in. Now, some of our clients surely have that view. Other clients are a little bit more circumspect. One of the things that's been a tailwind to growth for the last uh, several several years is 
the declining rate of inflation, the declining interest rates. Today, that dynamic is shifting. And the question on the minds of many is, how sustainable is this level of inflation with deglobalization, decarbonization, and some of the other um, sort of now headwinds that we face from an inflationary environment? And if inflation at higher levels is here to stay, that could change the calculus of growth to value. And that's what many of our clients are struggling with. Some are for sure taking the advantage, buying into growth on the dips. Others are repositioning their portfolios to be either more value-oriented or more defensive in nature. The second tale of this quarter, as Hitendra noted earlier, is geopolitical risk. That's a truism and a euphemism for the war started when Russia invaded Ukraine back in February. Among other issues for investors, this has meant a jolt to commodities markets, especially oil. If we look at uh, our recent research from MSCI, um, taking a longer term view, we showed that since 1975, uh, net exporters of oil and gas in developed markets, such as Norway and Canada, they've typically outperformed uh, during periods of uh, rising oil. Now, the recent spike in oil and gas prices has been a live stress test. And in fact, countries like Norway and Canada were amongst the strongest top performing countries, the US as well. And that's a special case. Uh, the US has historically been a net importer of oil and gas until recently as 2019. And by 2021, the US was actually the world's largest producer uh, of oil and gas. The U.S. comfortably outperformed Europe by 20 basis points this quarter. So the impact that the, the war has had through repricing of commodities has actually impacted countries in many different ways. You know, for sure, the countries that you would expect, Russia, Ukraine, in uh, countries that are more, you know, higher proximity to that region performed weak uh, weekly during the, the quarter. But what was really interesting is while that emerging markets overall did poorly, there were pockets of the emerging markets that did very well. And, and one that struck me uh, was the Latin American uh, region where the returns were quite strong. That may not surprise some of our listeners because of the, you know, the makeup of that region. When we look at the, you know, the exposures there, you have uh, a market that is very materials heavy, that is very energy heavy. And those industries and sectors did it very well um, in the quarter, particularly as you know the, the crisis in Ukraine uh, took, took hold. Energy prices spiked, commodities spiked. And as a result, those industries, uh, the stocks in those industries tended to rally toward the back end of the quarter. And so when you you know take that uh, as a you know full period, the emerging markets Latin America index ended up doing very well, and it was a sort of a standout for the quarter. Australia was another market actually that did that did well. The Australia market was up, I think, over six percent for the quarter. And again, that's a materials, energy heavy, particularly materials heavy market. And so it would probably not surprise people that that market also did fairly well during the re, uh, during the quarter. At one point during my conversation with Anthony, we started talking about how investors, well, 
help people, they can find it difficult to focus on more than one thing at any one time. We won't go into the whole conversation here, but before we continue with the impacts of the war, I do want to spend a little bit of time on it. It's, it's an important point, and it's a good reminder of the importance of taking a holistic view. I think it's worth noting that during times of stress, during what's happening in the market, it, it is important for investors to, to stay calm, to try and look through some of the noise and the headlines into what is happening in the markets. So one thing we, we track at, at BlackRock is, is something we, our BlackRock Investment Institute put together called the Geopolitical Risk Indicator. Now, this captures market attention to geopolitical risks, and it has spiked to the highest level in more than a year. And of course, this has been driven by the conflict-related uh, risks. But it isn't only looking at uh, the, the Russia conflict. It is also uh, looking at some other areas, um, for instance, the global tech decoupling. So that we see as a, as a risk that is probably a, a little bit um, underappreciated. And we see that as the, the street st strategic competition between the US and China. And that is driving global fragmentation as both countries focus on, on boosting their self-reliance and reducing vulnerabilities in, in their tech sectors. Uh, the other one we've got to remember that is still out there uh, and is becoming more and more prevalent is major cyber attacks. And we, we see an increased risk, uh, particularly now, uh, of cyber attacks both um, on uh, corporate levels, on, on individuals as ourselves, but also on uh, institutions and governments. And finally, one that I think, uh, again, is, is probably a little bit underappreciated is uh, climate policy. And this is really in what we're reading about now in the market. It's what we're experiencing now, uh, talking to you from London today. Um, you know, uh, we've seen that this crisis in Ukraine has brought energy security to the forefront and the, the world needs more uh, non-Russian fossil fuels in the short term. And we believe that this crisis will make the world's uh, transition to net zero uh, more regionally divergent. Uh, so we, we believe like in, in Europe, we believe they will boost decarbonization plans. Well, in the US, by contrast, there's perhaps less incentive for uh, the world's largest fossil fuel producer to transition. And in fact, uh, the US is, is trying to meet more of uh, Europe's energy needs at the moment. Let's return to investor considerations in the face of war. While, of course, we can't know what's going to happen, we can always look at what has happened during similar periods. Our research team has put out a lot of material over the, you know, the last quarter. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that is this uh, examination of the way markets have performed sort of pre 
in post-military uh, conflict over the last you know, 20 or 30 years. And they looked at five specific periods. And something that I thought was notable there was that the general observation or takeaway was that the trend that precipitated the conflict actually was the one that was sustained after the conflict and that markets generally had a fairly muted response. The reason I share that is that for sure, investors want to be nimble. They want to be responsive, but what they're really looking for are insights for the way uh, assets and equities have behaved in periods of time that feel a bit like today. And today, obviously, a lot of that has been around the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And can we learn something from the invasion of Crimea, from the Gulf conflict in the 90s? And investors are, are really studying those periods to try to understand about the, the way they make one to adapt their own portfolios and be both uh, defensive and obviously manage risk, but opportunistic where they can be. I mean, one aspect that's clear from um, just looking at previous periods of war is that every crisis is different. It's impacted people in different ways. It's impacted markets in different ways. And how it's impacted factor performance is also varied. But what is consistent across every crisis is that it has led to higher market volatility. And so strategies like minimum volatility have been useful tools to be able to dial down risk. And when we look back at the first quarter of 2022, the MSCI minimum volatility indexes have not just delivered lower volatility than their parent, but they've actually realized higher returns as well. So is that the main lesson to draw from looking back at, at previous wars, volatile markets and how to approach them? I would say it's... Um, it's difficult to extrapolate from um, historical crisis in terms of performance, but in terms of actual factor performance, uh, that's been uh, highly variable. So investors choose basically, let me just try defensive moves here. Make sure I'm, I'm at less risk. That's right. So the classic strategy is to be able to build more resilient portfolios that can withstand crisis and recent research from MSCI has shown that quality, for example, is a factor that can demonstrate resilience throughout uh, crisis periods, but also deliver out performance over the long run as well. It also seems to go back a little bit to the, the growth value question in that if the market is volatile and the market is or the market is down overall on the seeking opportunity side, is this a time where We've seen value investors get a get a bit more active, trying to you know buy the drops. So we saw a strong value outperformance uh, prior to the start of the war, uh, February twenty fourth. But looking at the details since the start of the war, uh, we've actually seen a rotation back into growth. We've seen a rotation back into higher volatility stocks to a certain extent. So this. This geopolitical uh, tension has impacted markets in different ways. And say, for example, from a U.S. investor's perspective, they may see this as a buying opportunity to increase their allocations to segments of the market that have sold off but are somewhat distant from what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Now, in contrast, if we look at emerging markets, uh, we've seen continued outperformance of 
uh, growth over of value over growth since the start of the war. So there's been strong divergence, even when you think about growth versus value, whether we're speaking about developed markets or emerging markets. Following a quarter where macroeconomic risk and war held our focus, and other concerns such as the developed market emerging market divide, cybersecurity, and climate change continued. The question for our guests is in the face of all this, what does it mean to be a quote, factor investor? So, a factor investor is having a, a, a holistic awareness of what's driving risk and return. Uh, of the portfolio. And when investors construct long-only portfolios, they may target a specific factor, such as value or growth that we've spoken about, or perhaps more broadly, a thematic strategy like innovation or efficient energy. Now, irrespective of these themes, in a long-only setting, these stocks will be exposed to side effects, exposures to factors that were not intended. For example, Efficient energy may have had negative exposure to value uh, last year. And so investors may, in, in some sense, overpay for growth. In another context, say with themes like innovation, they may be more exposed to risky stocks. So the recent events have reminded us that unintended exposures can have outsized impact on returns. And so whatever the theme uh, investors are targeting, is to think about being factor aware from a more of a holistic point of view. Some people might say that I say this because this is what I live and breathe, but my view is every investor is a factor investor. These are exposures, they're characteristics that are in your portfolio, whether you target them or not. So at a bare minimum, you need to be aware of what these exposures are and the impact they may have on your portfolio. However, what is equally true is that the way the average uh, investor today thinks about factors is not the same as what it was in the past. Investors do consider things like ESG, like climate. And this is so fascinating because what it tells you is investors are not so worried about the label of factor or non-factor about quant versus fundamental, but they're rather saying, how do I get a set of investment characteristics into my portfolio that reflect my investment views. And many investors, that includes managing their carbon footprint, and they want to move toward a net zero world. Some investors want to invest for the new economy. That's an innovative thematic play, if you will. The, the result of that to me is this exciting transition that's going on that reflects a, a refined way of thinking you know, I like to use the expression of first principles. Every investor will have factor exposure, uh, targeted or untargeted, intended or unintended. And as a consequence, you know, we should think of ourselves uh, as certainly being aware of those characteristics and what they might mean for the portfolio's risks, and the portfolio's returns. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe and me to Mark, Hitendra, and Anthony, and to all of you for listening. Next up on Perspectives, from proclamation to activation, we look at how different companies and investors have started to do the hard work it takes to live up to those net zero proclamations, even as we get further and further away from last year's COP26. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this 
is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe,